This is Ye Old Dragons Library, the storytelling podcast. Here in Season 3, we're featuring the steampunk series, Guardians of the Time Stream. This is a chapter from the prequel story, Odessa Fremont. Ready for fun with fantastical fiction? Then let's begin. Chapter 23 I see I'm going to have to create a more complex code for my journal. She fought to keep her expression calm. S decided this was a lesson to her. Never record such delicate, dangerous personal information, even in code, if her journal could fall into the wrong hands. Maybe she should use one of the ancient Egyptian dialects her grandfather had delighted in teaching her before she realized she was actually learning something academic. Spent the war breaking codes used by the South and the British forces supporting them. Had an offer to join the Secret Service when everything calmed down, but all that bureaucracy didn't appeal to me. Ellen Pinkerton was a friend from way back, so all the more reason to join up. I don't suppose you know any agents? Specifically Agent Randolph Sutter? Horace's front chair legs hit the floor with a resounding thud. S. laughed, and a moment later he joined in. Horace was here to scout out the area and get a feeling for the people in Watertown, the loyalties, the histories, the relationships. Most important was finding a house to rent, just outside of town, but close to the railroad tracks. A team of agents were due in Watertown that afternoon. According to the original plan, they weren't due to arrive for four more days. However, the gang of train robbers they were tracking had changed their pattern and routine. Those who had been spying on their activities and ordinary lives could only deduce that some sort of crisis had precipitated the change. Tensions were rising among the gang members. Alan Pinkerton himself had analyzed what five different agents had learned and made a calculated guess that the gang was either about to splinter into smaller groups or retire from the business. Part of that was the result of the Secret Service bearing down and making it harder than ever for the blue-eyed gang, as the robbers were called, to operate. The two cousins who headed the gang were the type who would want to go out in a blaze of glory. While the Secret Service was focusing on another part of the state as the possible location for the blue-eyed gang to go out in a blaze of glory, Ellen Pinkerton believed the monthly payroll shipment that came through Watertown was their target. To throw the gang off balance and force them to act quickly, he had convinced the owners of the railroad to ship the payroll early. It was now or never to catch these men before they faded back into their ordinary lives with no solid evidence to use against them. S would be part of the trap for the gang. However, while Horace thought she could handle the job before she was officially a Pinkerton, she had to prove herself to the other agents involved. Horace sent S in her fancy new boy suit to wait at the train station when the other agents came in. He had described them to her, but had no pictures to help her identify the men. They would come in on the same train, but not together. Her assignment was to watch the passengers disembark, identify the Pinkertons, and pick their pockets before they reached the hotel. Horace would not be waiting in the lobby for them as arranged, but at a rented house. When S. picked their pockets, she would slip a note into the pocket of each man, with the address of the house. In the hotel lobby, she was to leave their possessions for the front desk clerk to return to them, prompting them to search their pockets and find the notes. What if they don't think it's funny, she asked, after thinking about her instructions for some time in quiet. 
Meanwhile, Horace finished another cigar and wrote up a report on the entire wall-climbing thieves incident. They had waited until Buckman and Scopes were hauled off to jail, protesting loudly that the trap was unfair, then vacated the hotel suite to go to the rental house. Why would I want them to think that? Horace snorted and stubbed out his cigar in the garish bowl that tried to imitate a seashell. Why someone would want a bowl that looked like a polished seashell, big enough for a cup of coffee, S. had no idea. If I'm going to be working with them, I don't want them angry with me. I've seen what happens when new girls at school irritate their classmates. Hmm, hadn't thought of it that way. He examined the smoking stub, lips pursed while the seconds ticked by. So if they laugh, you think they won't be sore with you? Smile lines crinkled around his eyes, for a few moments reminding her so much of her grandfather that it hurt and stole her breath. Know what an elephant is? I rode one at the exhibition in London when I was six. Do tell, he nodded, eyes twinkling. Pinkertons need skins thicker than an elephant's hide. Need a wicked sense of humor. A snort. Need to learn how to play poker to pass the time when you're stuck on a long, dead, boring watch duty. My associates coming into town today are the sort who'll be downright tickled that you got the better of them, and then flabbergasted when they realize you're just a slip of a girl. I'll be 17 in two weeks. Then it's high time we got you into a different line of work. Not sure how much longer the disguise of ragged, footloose boy will work for you. Better learn more disguises. I'm thinking we'll put you on the train with the payroll shipment, looking like a fluttery, fussy little bird, cinched up so tight you can't breathe, without a thought in your pretty little head. The gang is evenly divided between the ones who'll be staring and tripping over their tongues, and the ones who will dismiss you as not worth their bother or notice. Until they trip over me? Horace chuckled and saluted her with his coffee cup. At four that afternoon, 19 people got off the train. S. identified the five Pinkerton agents by the simple expedient of noting who avoided looking at each other. Three of them almost slipped past her because they cleverly attached themselves to other passengers. An elderly lady needing assistance with her baggage and stepping down from the car, and two women with children. She had spent the time waiting for the train to arrive making a nuisance of herself rolling a hoop up and down the length of the platform, regularly wrapping the hip-high metal ring with the guiding stick hard enough to make it ring. Just as regularly, she tripped over her own feet and lost control of the hoop. The porter on the platform just laughed and encouraged her to keep trying and kindly warned her to step out of the way of the passengers when the train arrived. S. heard him sigh loudly when she aimed the hoop at the first identified Pinkerton agent, and to her delight, the porter laughed when it rolled straight into the man. "'Sorry, mister,' she said, breathless, and squinted at him through the thick, scratched lenses of the spectacles she had retrieved from the bins behind the hotel four days ago. The countess had taught her to always look for props, to help with disguises in the future, and S. thought it amazing luck to find the spectacles. Then she had second thoughts, when she put on the glasses and realized that they hadn't been ground in any way to help the wearer's vision— the lenses were plain glass. Someone else, most likely, had been using them for a disguise until they were too scratched to be useful. To complete her disguise, S. had inserted pads of cotton wool into her new suit of clothes to make her look plump. A sweaty, fat boy with thick spectacles was the epitome of harmlessness and easily ignored. Careful there, lad, the Pinkerton said, and kindly bent down to retrieve the hoop for her. 
S swallowed her frustration at having the chance for physical contact removed and tripped over her feet. She fell into the man and dropped the rod between his feet. Another of the suspected Pinkertons actually broke his pretense of not knowing him and took two steps toward them. S's target, if she was right, his name was Butler, shook his head slightly and bent down to pull her back up onto her feet. By this time, she had already slipped a thin flask from his outer coat pocket and replaced it with the first of Horace's notes. She stumbled away, apologizing profusely, darted back to retrieve her hoop and rod, and ran the other direction. This took her straight into the second Pinkerton. The long scar bisecting his copper-colored beard marked him as Henshaw. She yelped and hit him square in the chest and clutched at his coat long enough to slip his pocket watch free of the inner pocket of his vest. The note almost didn't go down into the little pocket, and S stumbled away, nearly stammering for real as she envisioned the note falling to the platform. She refused to fail so early by getting caught. She darted down the steps from the platform and found the third man, still disentangling himself from the woman with three children. The youngest had wrapped her arms around his lower left leg and sat on his foot. He was turning an interesting shade of red and brushing off the young mother's almost tearful, embarrassed apologies. Remembering Horace's comment about Pinkerton's needing a hide like an elephant made S. want to laugh. She decided he was anchored there at the station for a while, so she could take the risk of making the switch on the other two. Yates was the tall, pale-haired man with a strong resemblance to President Lincoln, and he had remained with the elderly lady he championed, escorting her to a pony cart waiting out front of the station. S. sent her hoop rolling in his direction. He didn't jump when the hoop banged into the cart's side while he and the driver, a young man who addressed the lady as Granny, got her settled. Feeling a little trepidation at this evidence of the agent's alertness, S. toned down her stumbling, stammering act and darted in to retrieve the hoop. A long-fingered hand caught hold of her wrist with an iron grip. She swallowed down a yelp and let Yates pull her to her feet. Sweat dripped into her eyes and her cap sat askew, low on her forehead. Sorry, mister, she mumbled. Be careful, lad. You don't want to hurt someone. Timothy O'Leary, is that you? The elderly lady said, chuckling. No, ma'am. Sorry. I'm new to town. Just moved here with my uncle Jasper. S hooked her thumb over her shoulder in the opposite direction of the rental houses. Yates finally let go of her wrist and she rubbed at it. A flicker of something softened his stern expression for a moment. S. took it for regret and decided she might like him after all. She hoped he was one of those who would laugh loud and long when he realized the trick played on him, as Horace had promised. Move along, lad, Yates said, and caught hold of her shoulder to turn her around. S. had managed to snag his handkerchief, fortunately still clean and unused, from his outer pocket. The note had seemed to crinkle extra loud, as if in defiance when she slipped it into place. She felt a little wobbly as she clutched hoop and rod in one hand and darted away. Now where was the fifth man, Miller? She found him shaking hands with a man who had to be the husband of the woman Miller had escorted. He was holding the little girl perched in the crook of his arm and laughing at whatever the Pinkerton man had just said. S. was tired of rolling her hoop into people. After all, how many times could she get away with it before someone got suspicious? Then the little girl dropped her doll when S. was only a few steps away. In a split second, she saw the sweet porcelain face and knew from bad experience the sound it would make when it hit the brick pavement in front of the train station. Dropping her hoop and rod, S. dove, 
stretching out her hands for the doll that fell head first. Her ribs hit first, knocking the breath out of her despite the cotton wool padding. She could have sworn that three bricks in a row stood a good four inches higher than all the others, hitting just right. Gray haze surrounded her vision as she felt the doll land safely in her fingers. At the same moment, the little girl let out her first shriek of dismay. Big hands caught hold of her by her collar and the back of her belt and hauled her upright. S couldn't seem to breathe or even get her arms and legs to move. Her glasses fell off and hit with a solid crack on the bricks. She felt the doll slipping from her hands and clutched it tight. Then a moment later realized the little girl was trying to take it back. Oh, thank you, the mother cried, while her husband bent to pick up S's glasses and Miller gripped her shoulders, keeping her upright when her knees tried to fold. Her grandmother just gave her that doll. She would be heartbroken to lose it so soon. S managed to wheeze a response. Suddenly her lungs figured out how to work again, and she gladly leaned into Miller's support while she caught her breath. He was so kind, she felt guilty relieving him of his coin purse. Then she panicked when he remarked that it wasn't right that she sacrificed her glasses for the sake of a doll, and his hands started to go toward his coat pocket. Don't worry about it, mister, she blurted. I can see fine, but my granny thinks my eyes are weak from the fever last winter. I'd just assume they were broke, if you know what I mean. Hi, lad, Miller winked. I do indeed. Not much fun when they treat you like a baby on leading strings, is it? He patted her shoulder and walked away, leaving her at the mercy of the grateful family. The little girl clutched her doll close and hid her face against her father's shoulder, taking brief, scowling glances at S while the parents thanked her again. Maybe she thought S would try to take the doll back? S was more than relieved when they said their farewells and she was free to return to her fifth and final target, who, of course, wasn't where she left him. S stumbled, the racing of her heart coming from panic rather than her too warm disguise. Why did it mean so much to her to pass Horace's test to perfection? One thing she knew, remaining any longer at the train station would attract attention. She didn't need to attract the attention of men trained to pay attention to their surroundings. She headed away from the train station, toward the hotel, and willed the last man, Cooper, to appear before her. Putting her hoop down, she rolled it along the edges of the brick-paved main street, paying more attention to the people ahead of her than the hoop. For some reason, the stubborn toy cooperated, letting out an almost melodious chiming sound when she tapped it with the rod to make it keep moving. A knot of people parted around her, and she glanced down to guide the hoop in a detour, looking up just in time to realize Cooper had stopped to talk with someone standing on the wooden sidewalk, a good eight inches higher than him. S let out a yelp and skidded to a stop. She nearly caught hold of the hoop to stop it from running into him, before she remembered that was what she wanted. Cooper laughed and snatched up the hoop while it was still wobbling crazily, unwinding itself like a top before it lay flat on the brick pavement. With his back turned to her, the pipe in his pocket stuck up through the side flap of his coat. S snatched it. Hey, thief, the man on the sidewalk cried. He dove at S at the same moment Cooper turned to hand her the hoop. Man and hoop collided and the hoop went tumbling. S still clutched the last note in her other hand. Unthinking, she handed it to Cooper. He took it. She turned tail and ran. A giggle rose up in her throat, threatening to choke her. Nine out of the ten steps without getting caught wasn't bad, was it? She stretched out her legs as far as she could and gasped for breath. If she could have paused to shed the cotton wool padding to make it easier to move and breathe, she would have. 
If she could get to the lobby of the hotel and duck out of sight before Cooper or the other Pinkertons arrive, she would consider the test passed with flying colors. Maybe Mr. Mortimer was on duty and would hide her? To her delight, the manager was just coming out of his office as she fled across the blessedly unoccupied lobby. He spotted her and paused, his mouth dropping open. S grinned cheekily and flew past him, straight into his office. She skidded to a stop in front of his big, paper-strewn desk. Gasping for breath, she snatched at the visitor's chair sitting there when her legs suddenly went as wobbly as German egg noodles. Then she nearly choked on laughter at the look on Mr. Mortimer's face, slowly changing from shock to a grin as he stepped back into the office and closed the door. She held out the pipe to him, but it took a few more seconds before she could get her breath enough to explain. Any second now, a gentleman in a brown waistcoat, with silver spectacles and a curled mustache, will get here looking for the boy who stole his pipe. Could you give it to him? Why did you steal his pipe? Mr. Mortimer took it from her, looking only curious, not confused. Detective Winslow told me to. She swallowed and wiped her sweaty face. Well, he didn't specifically say to take his pipe, but I had to pick his pocket and leave a note. Five gentlemen, altogether, and they should all be arriving soon. I imagine things could get interesting out there any minute now. She divested herself of the other items she had taken, dropping them onto his desk. Mr. Mortimer narrowed his eyes in thought, crossed his arms and cupped his chin, then tipped his head back and laughed. He pointed at the door on the other side of his office, told her it would take her to the back hallway leading to the kitchens, and then opened the front door and stepped out into the lobby. S. took the time to shed the cotton wool padding before exiting the hotel. She felt only slightly disappointed that she didn't see Oswald or any of her friends from the water crew. She reached the rental house and reported everything to Horace, scant seconds before several pairs of booted feet clumped on the front porch of the house and someone banged on the front door. Horace made no move to get up from his spot at the long kitchen table. S. had a fearful moment when she actually thought he would make her answer the door. Then the front door creaked open. She half rose from her chair and nearly knocked over the wooden mug of water Horace had pumped for her. Stay put. Horace tipped onto the back two legs of the chair. He caught one booted foot around the leg of the kitchen table, balancing himself perfectly. Henshaw led the way, all five Pinkertons arriving together. He stopped three steps into the kitchen, after giving S. only a passing glance. His glare unloaded its full force on Horace, who just nodded to him as he pulled out his cigar case and penknife and prepared another cigar for smoking. The other four detectives stepped into the kitchen, shaking their heads, lips pressed flat in various degrees of disgust. Pay up, Yates said. Butler handed him several coins and stepped over to the pump to fill a mug of water for himself. Who bet against me, Horace asked, tossing the end of the cigar toward the dry sink. We all did, Henshaw growled. He yanked out a chair, dropped heavily into it, and turned to S, looking her up and down three times. Then abruptly, his face dissolved into laugh lines and he slouched in the chair. Very good, boy. Very good. I'm guessing Horace is recruiting you? Alan would have my head if I let talent like hers slide out of my grasp, Horace said. Hers? Butler yelped, choking on his water. The others all laughed, and Horace gave her an I-told-you-so grin as he sat forward and slammed the front legs of his chair down to the floor. We've come to a break in the story. 
I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. You're invited to visit Neighborly, Ohio. Where? Somewhere on the north coast of Ohio, south of Cleveland, right off of I-71, north of Medina, in the heart of Cuyahoga County. What is it? Neighborly is magic. Some people say the town is alive. It exists to protect the weird and wonderful from the cold, practical, material world. More important, Neighborly protects the outside world from the weird and wonderful that come to visit, and sometimes come to stay. First stop, Divine's Emporium, a four-story Victorian house sitting on a hill overlooking the metro parks. Whatever you really need, you can find at Divine's, even if you don't know what you're looking for when you walk in the door. The shop is often bigger inside than it is outside. Angela is the proprietor. Please stay on the first floor. You don't want to find out what is hidden and locked safely away upstairs. Like Aslan, Angela is good, but that doesn't mean she's safe. And neither are the secrets and wonders and doorways to other worlds that she protects and keeps securely locked. Come in and explore. Meet the people who help Angela guard neighborly. Share their adventures of magic and wonder, danger and sacrifice. You never know who or what you'll run into as you walk the streets and listen to the stories of their lives. The Neighborly Ohio Fantasy Series from Michelle Levine and Ye Old Dragon Books. mlevine.com and yeolddragonbooks.com And now, back to the story. Horace hadn't been joking or exaggerating when he described the costume that S. found herself in the next day. She entertained herself on the three-hour train ride back to Watertown, speculating how many sets of lace window curtains had been sacrificed to make her ridiculous, fluttery, wasteful costume. What sort of fool would wear yards and yards of white lace on a train in the heat and dust of summer? The only positive point she could see in her draping costume was that the sleeves were wide and hung down nearly to her fingertips, all the better to conceal the small pistols strapped to both forearms. All the poof and airiness of her ridiculous dress actually allowed for air circulation, so she didn't swelter nearly half as much as the women around her, all of them dressed in sensible linsey woolsey and homespun, in dark colors that didn't show the cinders and dust and coal smoke coming through the open windows. Along with the pistols, her arsenal included a gold-white and sky-blue Chinese fan, the panels of which separated to become throwing knives. The overflowing skirts hid a pistol, tucked into a specially made holster just above her left knee. On her right leg, she had a pouch of bullets. S. tried not to speculate on just what kind of situation this whole operation would turn into, that she would have both the need and the opportunity to reload her three guns. The detectives all agreed she was there as a backup precaution only, in case things turned southerly, as Yates put it, when they closed in to confront and capture the blue-eyed gang. On a more positive note, Butler actually apologized when he handed her the rest of her props to fill in the character she pretended to be. First, an utterly useless, tiny reticule, barely large enough to carry a paper packet of sweets, a bottle of smelling salts, and two handkerchiefs. What was she supposed to do with them? 
turn the handkerchiefs into a slingshot and try to mimic David, using the sweets in place of the five smooth stones? Which one of the gang would stand in for Goliath? Next was a carpet bag packed with several ladies' journals, offering advice on fashion, per the standards on the other side of the Atlantic, or essays on the rising quality of public education, and the benefits of trusting her health to the slowly growing numbers of female physicians being graduated on the East Coast, or advice columns dealing with courtship, the perfect wedding festivities, and raising children who would be ready to face the glorious new world, or preparing children to face the hazards of the grim future, depending on the viewpoint of the authors. What S. found only slightly amusing was that both authors blamed all this on the increase of technology that offered wonders such as labor-saving devices and swifter transportation, thanks to steam and airships. One author warned that disease would spread around the globe and devastate the populations of nearly every country, thanks to the ease of importing foreign foods and fresh foodstuffs straight from the orchards and fields and forests. If she had anticipated the shallow mindset and simplistic writing, S. would have asked for something more meaty to read. Even a volume of history she had read before would have been more enjoyable. Although, she supposed if she had managed to get hold of something on ancient Egypt, what were the chances of that, this far from a major city with a worthwhile museum of antiquities, that would have clashed in horrible discord with the fluttery, spun-sugar image the Pinkertons wanted her to project. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.